0: This is Jonathan Fields with this week's Good Life Project Roundtable. So that's a format where I have guests in residence. And we go around the table and we each throw out one topic and jam until we're, well, pretty much done jamming. My guests in residence today and for, actually for three weeks now, are two dear friends of mine. We have Emilia Zivotovskaya, who is a scientist. She has a master's in applied positive psychology, runs the largest certification in applied positive psychology program in the world. And it's just a stunningly brilliant mix of deep academic and scholarship and also a pretty soft metaphysical side. And she blends it in a way which just makes you think. Also joining as a guest in residence for today and for three weeks now, is Bob Gower. Bob is a deep systems thinker with a strong background in philosophy and um, agile development for those in the uh, sort of technology world. He's worked with teams at the highest level in some of the largest organizations and also startup entrepreneurs. He also has a background in cults and in all sorts of worlds where um, people influence others to make decisions. And that comes out in a lot of really interesting ways in the conversations over the next couple of weeks. So really excited to share these conversations with you. I'm Jonathan Fields. This is Good Life Project. Hello, people of Earth. Hello. <sighs> Hanging out today for a round table I'm with my guests in residence, Bob Gower and Amelia Djebitowskaya.
2: Whoop, whoop.
0: Was that good? It was amazing, I keep Jonathan. practicing.
2: It wow. was amazing. have only
0: known each other for like a dozen years.
2: <laughs>
0: it was perfection. My goal is before I die, I want to know how to like totally pronounce your name. So we actually say it for real. Like if you were like pronouncing it to like somebody from Ukraine. Hmm. Oh, I like that better actually. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty cool. Cool. Not even going to attempt it.
2: <laughs> My goal eventually to be like Madonna. Just it's Amelia.
1: It's
0: Amelia. Just yeah.
2: Drop the last name altogether. One day.
0: Well, you have the Amelia.com I already, do. right? So. I do. So we're hanging out. This is a round table format, which means we rock and roll. We go around the table and we each throw out a topic and we jam on it until it's unjammed or completely overjammed, whichever ends up happening first. Bob. Yes. Would you like to start? With, with a topic? Yeah. So, yeah, I would.
1: Uh, I've been thinking a lot about anger recently and uh, I've been watching the, the election cycle. And it occurs to me that the two dominant figures in the election cycle right now are angry white men. We may or may not agree with Donald Trump or Bernie Sanders, but they're both like their public display is kind of angry. And it seems to me that there's an undercurrent of anger in the culture that they're giving some kind of voice to. And it gets me thinking about uh, having seen Brene Brown. And John Ronson, who wrote The Psychopath Test and So You've Been Publicly Shamed. Mm. And they were talking about how shame has no place in true transformation. And I think there's a real close connection between being angry at somebody and wanting to shame them. So my question or my topic really is, is anger constructive potentially? And if so, how? Like, What makes constructive anger different from non-constructive anger?
0: Mm. So, Amelia, our resident master's in applied positive psychology slash pursuing PhD in my body science, what do you think of that?
2: I think that all emotions are beautiful, and they are what make us human. And the problem with the emotion comes when we don't know how to work with it. And its I think it's so interesting, the use of anger and how, how is it used? So when it's a personal experience, you can't, it's human to experience anger when you believe that your right is being violated or someone is harming you or someone that you care about or something that you care about. Mm. And I uh, love my friend Deb Giffen's statement that anger plus love equals determination. Mm. So if you think of the emotion as just neutral, like anger is just anger. It's that it's a, physical, physiological response of protection. It strikes up the sympathetic nervous system, releases cortisol and adrenaline through our body. It's meant to activate, meant to do something through that experience, but it's a matter of how do you work with it or what do you do with it? So you can use that sensation that you get and use it to be determined towards something, towards a change that you wanna see happen in the world. Um, Many people don't know how to work with their experience of anger even just the experience of stress stress releases chemicals into your body and the best way to use that chemical is to actually complete the stress cycle so you get these chemicals released in your body we were supposed to move them out of our body they weren't meant to just hang out and just Mm -hmm. sit there for a long period of time so i think that anger is all about what do you do with it? And same thing with any emotion. If you get stuck in sadness, it becomes depression. You get stuck in worry, it becomes anxiety.
1: And what I about think, getting stuck in a positive emotion like joy? Does that also have a downside?
2: I think it does. I think you get stuck in joy, you are really, really afraid that maybe someone will take the joy away. Or it's like nobody move, nobody breathe, nobody... Like, do anything different, because my joy level might change. From a positive psychology perspective, mental health is about movement and digestion and how well can you dance between those polarities. And I think that people, maybe these politicians, are using anger to show how determined they are, and they think that they can pull people to rally with them. But we know that the negative is more attention-getting than the positive. And-
0: Thus the news cycle. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, like, if we didn't have that bias, then it'd be interesting if, if somehow, you know, so we know that we have a negativity bias and we go towards things that are negative. It'd be fascinating. Like, if we were somehow wired so that we had a positivity bias, you know, the, the nature of all mainstream media would be that it would be positively slanted because that's where the attention would go. And then that's where the advertising dollars would go, you know, but the fact that it's not, it's not a reflection of the media. It's a reflection of like the innate human bias towards negativity. So it's it's almost like in a weird way, we're slamming the media for giving us sort of like the thing that we most, you know, are drawn toward, like the, for giving us the light that we're most drawn towards. Not that it's a good thing that we're drawn towards it. But yeah, I mean, it's really interesting to when like, the way you describe emotions, Amelia, and I kind of think of them, whether it's anger, whether it's joy, whether like whatever it is, as like everything has some energy and not like a metaphysical type of energy, but like, there's like an energy behind stuff and it's almost like, you know, there's a, there's a zero line and the energy can be sort of like anger has in my mind, like a plus energy, like you're adding energy to the ecosystem. Whereas depression in my mind has like, it's almost like a negative energy. Like you're taking energy out of the ecosystem and making it so like you literally don't have the energy to act to remove yourself from it. Whereas so it's interesting because it gets back to what you're saying, Bob, which, you know, when I look at anger, you know, because I see it as as an emotional state that adds energy to the ecosystem, the question to me becomes, okay, which goes back to Amelia, what you were saying, not so much is it a good or a bad thing, but it's it's an exp- an emotional experience that adds energy to the, the ecosystem. And if we, so the question is like, Can we then, like, how do we figure out how to take that energy and actually harness it for constructive action rather than destructive action? What I think we're seeing a lot is that, like, people are pouring massive amounts of of anger, you know, like energy into the ecosystem right now. And a lot of it's being harnessed for destruction rather than positive.
1: Yeah. I was thinking about, so if we had a... If we were a species that was positively biased, we probably wouldn't. There's a huge evolutionary cost to that, right? Yeah, we'd probably be dead. Yeah, we'd probably probably be extinct, right? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. sad to say, but. That poisonous thing, maybe it's not poisonous. It's probably not poisonous. We'll just eat it.
2: Yeah. Right.
1: Yeah.
2: That's why I think it's about recognizing that the permission to be human is all of the life experiences, all the emotions that we have, just knowing how to use it. I'm actually curious, John, what do you do when you're angry? What's your way of
0: working with anger? Oh, I don't get angry. I don't do angry. <laughs> you don't
2: do angry ever. No one has ever right, violated a right of yours. You're
0: never. <laughs> I'm just good with all of humanity. Um, you know, I, I don't have a clear answer to that, but what I do know is that, um, well, I know, what I, I know what works for me, but I don't doesn't mean I do it. <laughs> um, you know, I know that movement, that if I get at outside is a reset for me. If I go into nature, it's a huge reset for me. If I go and move my body, it's a huge reset for me. So it's like taking that, I think, but for different reasons. I think nature almost dissipates the um, the energy of the anger, whereas exercise actually utilizes it. it like it, it's an alchemy where mm-hmm. it transforms the energy into movement.
2: Interesting. So
0: I think it, but I think both of them bring me back to like that zero state. Or I'll do them until I'm back there. And I think also just a, a precursor to that is a persistent stilling practice. I think also it stops me from going there in the first place or going so deeply there in the first place. So the need for a reset isn't as strong. What about you?
2: So um, I use my body to guide me. And so even just talking about anger, I can actually feel this intensity kind of like boiling, like mm. building up in my throat energy. And they actually did an interesting study on emotions. And I love what you were talking about adding energy versus taking it away. They, they had these uh, body maps on a computer screen and people had a mouse and they were asked to think about an emotion and click on the body where they felt they would either getting the emotion added or taken away and depression. And they, they used a color gradient from blue being taking away energy, like emptiness and then red being really dark and adding. And so with depression, it was a lot of blue energy kind of like down and in the center and outward, whereas anger was like orange and red. And it was more in like the upper chest and third area and in people's hands, which I thought was interesting. Um, what do, how do i deal with it i feel like i have to get the energy out and so i will frequently write letters t- to the person or to the mm. thing and like i my i just i need to get in front of a keyboard and type as fast as i can and i need to literally alchemize the energy and oftentimes because it does get in my throat i have to make sound so i find myself like either doing like lion's breath like <sighs> which i'm really glad you guys are far away from the table that i didn't just like expose you to that or or literally like screaming um i have to make sound to to let it out because otherwise i can literally feel it just and I don't want to say eat away at me because it doesn't, but it 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 I just can't I not as focused and still and then I can do the still practice afterwards, but I just I need to move it out of my body. And mm-hmm. I find that typing on a keyboard just make sure there's no that you don't put the email address in the recipient, You know, or just like blank word document and just get it out of my mind it really helps me.
0: That's, I, I love it. It's funny when you're saying that, it, it reminded me of years ago. One of the first retreats we ever ran was at this um, center, like a couple hours outside of New York City. And when we were looking at the place, we noticed that it was this older structure, but some of the windows seemed to be like really new and double reinforced. And the guy was telling us that they had a large regular group that would go there and hold this retreat every year. And a big part of what would go on is they would like sometimes for hours, they would just have these like, you know, like they would wail and have these primal screams and they had to actually install, you know, like special um, sound insulated windows because their neighbors like up the mountain. Oh it God. was oh, so loud where like they got all these complaints and the police would come. But there's, <laughs> wow. I guess there, there's a whole school of, of like therapeutic thought that says like this yeah. is incredibly, it, it works.
1: But doesn't, I feel like I learned from you, Amelia, that also that you can... Um, kind of normalize that for yourself? Like, so if you're like acting out, like the the, the idea of catharsis may not be as cathartic as we think it is, right? Mm-hmm. The idea of just letting it out, that we actually acc- customize ourselves to getting angry.
0: Yeah.
2: yeah. I think the big difference is um, experiencing anger and expressing anger are two very different things. Mm-hmm. So I think people misunderstand that, you know, anger To to move your anger doesn't mean you have to express it necessarily, but being able to experience it is different. And asking yourself, what do I need at any given point to experience this or to work with what life is giving me? Anytime that we get into like, uh, whether it be it's, oh, my experience is, oh, I do this for catharsis or I do A, B, and C, when we start to just act remotely or wrote, wrote, Lee, from that perspective I think that's when we kind of get stuck it's like sometimes it'll be good to be cathartic and sometimes it'll be good to go for a walk and sometimes it'll be good to do other things with yeah.
1: it I mean what I find is I I try like I used to my anger used to run me a lot of ran a lot of my life and, and ruined a lot of my relationships and one of the things I realized was that I kept kind of going back into I kept kind of like hitting that like being the mouse like hitting that pedal again for whatever reason I seemed to enjoy it. Like I had to admit that I got some kind of hit of enjoyment out of it for one. And then I began to like methodically remove all the opportunities to get angry out of my life. So I, you know, if people, you know, it's kind of like Marie Kondo, the, what is it? The, the magical art of cleaning up or right. tidying, tidying up, up. What up, right? So does this item bring me joy? Right. You know, I started saying, does this relationship bring me joy? Does this job bring me joy? Does this thing, you know, and I just kind of like, if it didn't, I let it go. And then I wonder, is that is there a week? Cause I have a very like pleasant life right now. Like I'm really, really happy with my life at the moment. And sometimes I wonder, well, like, well, I like, could it be more effective if I was like leaning into like really difficult right. situations that pushed my buttons and then I was able to manage
0: that. And but then this I was, is like, also like the classic artist, you know, like illusion or delusion or conundrum where it's like, if I get happy, am I still going to be able to do great art? Or is like the, is this source of great art only like my deep and profound suffering? If I get rid of my, one of my devils, will my angels leave too? Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'm not a believer in that, but um, certainly a
1: lot of people are. That's funny. I think that's one of my next topics as well, huh. is, is, is right along those All right.
0: So we'll circle back to that. Yeah. <laughs> so why don't we uh, zoom around to Amelia. What's on your mind?
2: Well, my topic was going to be around vibration. So I love that we started in the conversation around anger. Um, the way I've been experiencing or experimenting lately is thinking a lot about energy medicine, thinking a lot about... Vibration and some of the things that we science is starting to help us understand better, like even your your statement around being in nature. There's uh, this idea that everything that lives pulsates and vibrates and nature has a frequency. The sound that we're making right now has a frequency. And how how do we understand energy and vibration and how do we harness energy and vibration? And so I've been thinking about energy medicine as modalities. I've been thinking about the research that shows that nature vibrates at the same healing frequency that your physical therapist might use in a vibration wand if you've That's torn. A, is
0: it the Schumann resonance
2: Something or? like right, that, yeah, the Schumann yeah. vibr- vibration. And so it's like, wow, that's interesting. And we can—that's one, maybe one of the reasons why I feel so healing to be in nature. And I've been thinking about that combined with um, Kim Cameron's work on positive energizers in the workforce, like actually measuring who are the people that are net positive. They add energy to the ecosystem versus the energy vampires who are net, net negative. And I don't know any of those. Never. never well, you, you, you block bu- them all the out. You've eliminated them entirely.
0: And even if you uh, knew them, you wouldn't be angry about it. <laughs> exactly, exactly.
2: <laughs> so I've just been thinking about how do we harness... Energy and vibration, and all the different spectrums of vibration that that we can produce as human beings, and that we can also be antennas for as human beings. Like, how do we work
0: vibration? So, uh, well, for the for the woo woo listener and for the unwoo woo listener, mm-hmm. um, take me there because it's funny. So, I know that we've known each other for a long time now, and I know you're this kind of astonishing and inexplicable blend of. Like deep, you know, academic scholar. Um, at the same time, completely and utterly open to the unexplainable. Mm. Um, so when you talk about vibration, what do you actually mean?
2: I mean the, I, I, I mean vibrations of different energy waves. So we've got light vibration, we've got sound vibration, we've got. Just this idea that everything that lives vibrates, everything that lives pulsates in some way. We've got vibrations in our heartbeat. Your heart is. Producing a magnetic energetic wave that is emitting from your body and it goes out into the world. And at the same time, we've got microwaves and we've got telephone vibrational waves. So I guess it was too vague in saying, what do I mean in harnessing vibration? I think what I'm thinking of is how do we work our own energy? And so, what when we're looking at our own vibration, we're looking at Thought vibrations, like every thought that you have, is is firing at a particular resonant frequency, and which so, is
0: measurable outside the body. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> which, which would surprise a lot of people. Yeah. yeah.
2: So yeah. the ones that I spent a lot of time like dabbling and playing with is different EEG frequency of like brain waves. I spent a lot of time playing around with heart rate variability as a as another body wave, and um, and then I would laugh because I, I mean, thank you for the acknowledgement of my ridiculous woo-woo-ness with my desire for all things measurable because, and then at the end of the day, what I really rely on is like we, i that we as human beings are little antennas. Like I don't need an instrument to tell me how I feel when I'm with someone that really energizes me. And I can feel this dread of like, I just don't want to be in a room with this person. Oh my gosh. Um, and so, so knowing this like how do we how do we become more masterful of our own energy and also working energy and and even even the energy of our room and our workspaces how do we how do we work it so that we feel really like we're thriving if you we all have that experience with too much stuff like that is very loud energy around us versus we're quieting space and that creates a certain energy whether there be light or sound that we're picking up on
0: mm. what are you thinking about
1: Well, first I was thinking about, it's nice to be in this room with you guys. And so I was thinking about, I heard Ian McKellen, the actor speak a little while ago, and he talked about the difference between being on stage to being, and and working without amplification. And the primary difference is that it actually creates a vibration. I'm creating a a vibration of the air right now, which is then hitting your eardrum, which is then entering your body. Mm -hmm. And so it's a much more intimate experience than say the people, the listeners on you know, in their car or whatever, listening to this podcast now, mm. who are hearing recorded, who are hearing, a, who are having a fundamentally different experience of us as people. And that gets me thinking, I work a lot with distributed teams, the the teams that I work with the building technology, we're, you know, we're in 10 countries on five continents right now, you know, and there are only 50 of us, like it's a small team, but we're very, very distributed. And we all got together in Costa Rica back in January. It was the first time that this team had come together after many of them working together for eight years or nine years, the team, the country, the company has been around. And I think getting to have that sort of physical experience of somebody is largely about that vibration in some way. And it fundamentally alters the remote experience that you have from the person, even being together with them briefly for a little while. Now, when I see somebody on Slack or on email or on GitHub or some you know, one of these, you know, sort of digital mediums that we use. I have a really, really different experience with that person. I think it's because I've been in that, in their vibrational presence, I guess.
0: Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because there's the thing that I key in on, on in on with that is um, our awareness, you know, that if, All of these things, we emit, you know, a wide variety of actual measurable electromagnetic frequencies and waves outside of our body that, that are perceived by other people within a certain range from us. Um, So like you, I guess the assumption is that that would be a perceivable and B, it would in some way affect you, you know, even if it's something you couldn't see. So Bob, Bob talks and we hear him. So we know he's talking. Right. But Amelia thinks of somebody dear to her who's in pain for a moment, and something inside of her changes, and her heart flutters, or tenses, or speeds, or races. And that sends something out. But, but, you know, I can't see what's in her mind. Yeah. But can I like sense that something just shifted because something changed in her heart, which somehow. Mm-hmm radiated out into the space and I yeah. I don't know the answer to that but you know so so part of my question is can we actually perceive that as human beings yeah. we can measure it with super sensitive devices but are we actually as sensitive as those devices as individuals
2: yeah. or do we have to focus our attention so I know when I'm sitting in a coaching session with a client who has my undivided attention I'll notice really subtle shifts mm-hmm. of their Emotions, which I recognize I'm perceiving through body language, through tone of voice, and then things that literally are just energetic. I feel in my body what they might be feeling, and 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 can we perc- do we need to be attending to it in order to perceive it? So if you're listening to Bob and my mind wanders and I think of uh, someone else who I might be feeling sad about, but you're not attending to my emotion or you're not focusing on me, would you be feeling it anyway? You know. Is
1: yeah. It's interesting. Well, don't you think, I mean, I feel like humans, were all in many ways, natural mind readers. I mean, the, the idea that when we're babies, you, like being able to be attuned to your mother's emotional state is a, is a, is a core survival technique, right? And, and then being attuned to yours as well. So, but as we get to adults, we start to discount all of that. Like I may walk into a room as a facilitator and feel like, oh, everybody's fine because nobody said anything. But if I go one layer deeper and I'm like, well, what's, how does my body feel? Is my the hair standing up on the back of my neck? Do I feel like there's something unexpressed that needs to be expressed in this room? Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I, I deal with like technology people who aren't good at expressing emotions <laughs> and stereotypically and, and perhaps for real as well. But, the, but, you know, like I find that the more I stay attuned to that and the more I'm willing to kind of lean into that and say, okay, what do I, what do I have to address that's not being addressed right now? that I find that things tend to go better. Like the more I admit that maybe I can read somebody's mind, even though it sounds kind of crazy, but I think that's what we're talking about. I think think our our body is picking things up. It just hasn't hit
0: necessarily. We have to let it hit the conscious level. Yeah. And I guess there are things that we can do also to alter. I mean, it's like Amy Cuddy's work on presence, you know, that they're, yeah. simple changes in posture somehow alter the way that we bring ourselves to the world in a way that's perceivable, like whether yeah. that's in terms of waves or just, you know, like a hundred micro physiological and physical mm-hmm. observable tells that we don't even know we're observing. Yeah. Um, and I guess you, you can't really separate those two.
1: So a- Amy had something, it's just great that you bring this up. I'm in the middle of her book right now, and I've gone back to some of her other, artic- her previous work. And one of her articles from Harvard Business Review, I read from a couple of years ago, She talks about this matrix, the warmth versus competence, yeah, yeah, the two by two thing, right? That was
0: going to be my topic.
1: Was that going to be your topic? So (laughs) I move right into that. Oh, there you go. It's it's yeah. I I actually just I gave a talk to a bunch of technology people last week, and I finished with this because I was because we were talking about building up teams that move that move faster essentially, and I was like, we have to have trust and respect, and as technology people, we always lead with competence. We're always answering the mm-hmm. question, can you handle this? Right. can I handle? It? can I can you make this thing happen? But we're never really answering the question because we don't necessarily believe we're not as woo-woo as as, as some people. Um, but uh, is you know, do I care about you? do you know am I able to care? And I and one of the what I the thought I left the topic, the, the conversation with I was like, we have to lead with warmth. You have to answer that question first. otherwise
0: nobody's able going to be able to receive that. Yeah. Can you be competent? And that's so yeah. why don't we just kinda like dive into that a little yeah, bit more? Because yeah. that was, you know, that was what Amy's research was around, which was sort of like this balancing act between warmth um or slash likability and competence. And you'd like we'd like to think that when we go to hire somebody, you know, or when we're going to work with somebody, you know, like we want the best person in the world. But what she was essentially saying is that you don't get to competence. And that's, for those listening, it's compete with a P, not confidence, but competence until you get past warmth. So competence doesn't really matter until you actually trust mm-hmm. somebody, until mm-hmm. there's a sense of warmth, like there's rapport. And what's interesting is when I read that, I was like, well, yes and no. So a couple years back, I had um, I had throat surgery. And um, as soon as we realized that there was something going on and that I was gonna need to have surgery, my first response was I could not care less about the bedside manner of the woman or man who's about to cut my neck open. All I care is that they're the best in the world at what they do. And I went and I I looked for the best person that I could find. So I think it's interesting in that I don't entirely agree with the warmth slash competence thing. I think it's it's relevant to the sort of like the nature of the of, of of the task that's being sought after but do you want them you want them to care though
1: like you would want them to like you wouldn't want them necessarily be psychopathic or sociopathic like unable to have
0: empathy towards you as a human being if they were the best at the world at cutting something out of my neck i think i would rather have that than somebody who wasn't that good but cared a little <laughs> bit more about me yeah i, I don't i don't know do you think- i have to think about it, but it's When, when, like, I think when this it's a matter of stakes to me. Yeah. The higher the stakes get, in a weird way, I feel like the less warmth matters and the more competence matters.
2: Would you say it's about locus of control? Meaning, if you're thinking about who you want to hire, then I understand that you know, no matter how great you are at your job, if I don't want to be in a room with you, I probably would want to figure that out first, but you can't cut your own throat open. I hope you wouldn't want to. And and so you're going to leverage firstly, the control that you do have, which is to choose the person who's going to, to do the best job, but that
0: the the nature of the relationship is different than it would when you have control over the- Yeah, I have no doubt you know, that that plays into it. And by the way, it turns out that the best guy in New York City and one of the best in the country also happens to have a wonderful bedside manner. So I ended up with both. Yeah. But, um, you know, it had had that same gentleman walked in and the doctor basically um, had, you know, what's <laughs> sort of commonly known as like the the classic, you know, high level specialty surgeon uh, approach to just pure. This is just, you know, mechanical. I don't think I, it would have changed my willingness or desire to work with him.
1: Yeah. I mean, I had a hip surgery a few years ago and it was a, and, and my surgeon had no bedside manner. I think I spent I spoke maybe, you know. Less than a half hour total time with him before he actually cut me open. And I had a lot of confidence in him basically because of it. But I also wonder, in that case, we're also looking at the surgeon as the only person responsible. But there's a team of people that sits around the surgeon. And what we do know is that if someone's making somebody else feel unsafe, then we're actually lowering their cognitive functioning. So if that surgeon is behaving in such a way, even though they're really good mechanically with cutting, are they good at also inspiring and focusing and creating a team that's actually also going to
0: hold you and be responsible. Yeah, and for I think you, that gets right? back to what Amelia was saying. Also, it's sort of like you know, like building on the locus of the control, and also that like, is this a? Are we looking to develop a long term working relationship? Mm-hmm. Um, because yeah, at that point, if somebody's you know, like I want somebody who buys into my my beliefs and my values and my vision and my culture. And, and um, I'd love to have the highest level of competence, but I'll take that person yeah. first and then train competence if I need to. Yeah.
2: It reminds me of the trust equation that you could actually map out trust based on trust equaling credibility plus reliability plus intimacy divided by self-orientation. So it's it's kind of an interesting thing to, to plop something like that in. So if you happen to know that this person has low bedside manners, but is really, really good at what they do, their self-orientation is not all that high. Like you kind of understand that this is just the way the person is, they still have my best interest in mind and they're credible and in that they are they can do what they're doing and they're reliable, they're able to do it. And therefore I don't need that much intimacy from them. I trust this person. But if someone else is not recognizing that their low bedside manners is, is you know, them being focused on themselves rather than focusing on the patient, then that's gonna start making them not trust their surgeon and can affect everything from their healing to other things. When, we're, when we go into something in a state of stress, our body just doesn't heal as quickly as it does when we trust. I think that uh, our own understanding of it and our own expectations, we can talk about it as, is it is it kindness or do, do you like the person? What was, the, I, f- I forgot the matrix. It's the the matrix, the two by two was warmth, warm, com- warmth, warmth, and confidence. And so yeah. I think that, you know, the warmth is... Trust. If I were to just uh, substitute the word warmth with trust, it's Mm -hmm. like, do I trust you? And part of that trusting is that intimacy, that warmth that that you bring me, the positivity that you bring me. It's like, do I trust you or not?
0: Yeah, and it's trust, but likability plays a big role in it also. It's interesting too, I think from um, the perspective of somebody like I, I can I can never just pull my entrepreneur hat off entirely. So because I have so many conversations with people who want to start businesses or practices, or and when you're newer in your career, you know your competence is low because it has to be low. You're like you're a newbie, right? So some people will get really arrogant and try and fake competence and end up actually sort of like lessening their warmth and their competence, and then wondering why everybody's running from them. It's because like you're incompetent and you're an idiot, you know, but they're trying to position themselves as being like the opposite of both. And then some people will come and they'll be like, look, I understand I'm I'm green. It can take me years to actually be really good. So, but that doesn't mean that I, like I can't do anything. What that means is that if I know that trust and likability and warmth actually is a really important part of bringing people into my orbit and working with me long enough so that I, they can actually help help me develop the competence that will then become like a leading draw for them to want to hire me. You know, you can think of it as, okay, if I understand that this is the dynamic, when I'm new at something, I'm trying to build a practice or a business, warmth and likability matter, you know, on exponentially more at that point. So if you really focus on developing that, focus on understanding human beings and social dynamics and cultivating a sense of deep caring and attention and warmth and presence, you know, it can really make up for a lot. But then, what I, what I see happening so often is that as soon as the competence level starts to rise to a point where someone's like, Yeah, I got it, they start to realize that that's a, a big enough draw that they pull back and they don't really want to do the work hmm. on the warmth side anymore. Hmm. Um, and then things change and they wonder why. I don't know if either of you guys are experiencing it. I don't know. I feel
1: like the older I get, the more I realize like everything seems to happen in subtext, which I think is kind yeah. of what you're talking about. Like anything that matters to me, like that really matters to me. And even, I mean, even my earning potential, like all happens in the subtext of the, of the conversation. And I think I always was in my early, younger days and earlier in my career, I always thought, well, no one, again, like the same thing. No one has said anything. Therefore, it's not a problem. I tried that in relationships as well. That didn't that didn't work <laughs> out work out so great. And now I realize, like, like I pay so much more attention to. I, I guess it's vibrations. I don't know, but it's like, how do I feel in this person's presence? How does this person feel to me? When I think about my wife, I'm like, do I? You know, like, how does how does she feel today? Do I? Does she feel like she needs anything, even if she not if, if she's not asking for it? And you kind of like lean into that and give that. I don't know, yeah
2: you, might yeah. might be one of the reasons though, why you're so happy in your life right now is because of that other centeredness that you bring into the world of of not just you know the ultimate depression is a me- centered universe, but being other centered and attuned to the world around you, present and mindful of other people yeah. shifts how we feel like. To hear what you're saying, John, and that once some of these people you've seen in the business world start to become competent, they start to lose that other, the other bit, the, the kindness, that confuses the heck out of me because then I was like, what are you doing in the first place? I I mean, I mean, think that if someone pursues something that they want to do and as they become really good at it, they, they lose that sense of kindness, they're possibly just not being mindful or self-aware enough to watch it impact them in the first place or, why are they doing it?
0: So I, I, this is something I, I wonder about a lot, and I don't i don't actually think it's that. Here's what I think. I think we've talked about this a little bit, and I'm still working on my theory behind this, but on a very simplified level, my sense is that people are wired on a spectrum between maker and helper, and you know, like the thing that sparks you is somewhere along that spectrum, and if you're wired on the spectrum more towards the maker side then it, being of service to others is nice. It lets you build something. It lets you create value and it lets you actually turn that into a living, but it's not what you wake up for. It never has been. And it probably never will be. What wakes you up in the morning is what Richard Feynman famously said, the kick of figuring the thing out. Mm-hmm. You know. So you you learn how to play the role of the helper and you step into cultivating the practices that let you become pretty good at it. But it's, it's not really your nature. And then the moment that you realize that you don't have to exert energy to continue doing that, you start to pull back and go into the cave. You see this with a lot of artists and craftspeople too, who like go out and like do all the work to build their career. And the moment they can go back into the cave, they do. Uh, do I don't know if that's valid or not. Do you
2: see the opposite with the helpers, the helpers that have to figure out a way to make something from their desire to help?
0: Yeah, I do actually. Same dynamic, yeah. Just reversed. They couldn't care less about the actual thing; they just yeah. want to serve. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, but they force themselves to care about the thing because they know they can't serve effectively without it. Without making so it's really interesting. It's something I've been mm-hmm. playing with. And so that. the the and so the service
1: people are focused on the person that they're serving rather yeah. than on the
0: thing that that person's making. They're yeah. focused on the relationship rather than the yeah. yeah. And your classic tech entrepreneur is a maker. Yeah. You know, whereas your classic private practice professional is a server or a helper. Mm-hmm. Or uh, at least more, more on that spectrum very often. Is there going to be a fields typology index there, coming? F- there something. actually is something in the works, <laughs> yeah, <no laughs> which <doubt>. deconstructs <laughs> it on a lot more levels. <laughs> but yeah, I've been working with this for a while now because uh, I've seen the, the dynamic so many times wow. now and tried to reverse engineer that yeah. um, I think there's something deeper going on.
2: It makes me kind of chuckle inside because i reminded of how we see the world, not as it is, but as we are. Mm-hmm. So as someone who's a helper yeah. that makes things because I love to help, I'm like, how could every anyone ever stop wanting to help, you know, once something is made? Like, I <laughs> right. can't even wrap my brain around it, but it makes so much sense that somebody would have it and the joys and the creation process for yeah. some.
0: Because, and I've, I've bumped into this with something entrepreneurs, when we teach them step one is figure out like, who's the persona, who are you serving? Because as a, as a marketer, and a language creator, everything gets so much easier when you can identify that person and the maker can't because they just don't care. So you have to teach them how to identify that person so that they can understand how to then create a conversation with them Mm -hmm and how to care about them, but it doesn't come naturally. Well, I think I just figured out where I sit on your, on your spectrum <laughs> based
1: on. Yeah, I mean, because I've I mean, I've organized my life as a maker right now. You know, like I, I've, you know, I my whole day is, the reason we're doing this, I said the afternoon would be better for me is because the mornings are maker time for me, mm. almost exclusively now. And I have to train myself to actually make things that people, you know, like think about this is for this person rather than this is just an interesting knot that I'm trying to untangle or explain for myself.
0: Yeah. So why don't we come full circle here, wrapping up part one of our round table with our guests in residence, Bob Gower and Amelia Zivotovskaya, said not the Ukrainian way, but close enough. You can find these guys. Where can they find you, Amelia?
2: Hi, you can find me at Amelia.com, E-M-I-L-I-Y-A.com. dot
0: And Bob? BobGower.com, B-O-B-G-O-W-E-R. Awesome. And these guys are our guests in residence for a couple more weeks. So we will be back with another conversation next week. Hey, thanks so much for listening to today's episode. If you found something valuable, entertaining, engaging, or just plain fun, I'd be so appreciative if you take a couple extra seconds and share it. Maybe you want to email it to a friend. Maybe you want to share it around social media. Or even be awesome if you'd head over to iTunes and just give us a rating. Every little bit helps get the word out and it helps more people get in touch with the message. I'm Jonathan Fields, signing off for Good Life Project. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me, and it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight-up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.